and the book of Psalms, the book of the Psalms, I'll turn myself on here, thank you, book of the Psalms, there we go, book of the Psalms, One, uh, the, the 142nd Psalm is where I'll have you find your place, 142nd Psalm. Um, it is, as I've mentioned, I appreciate the opportunity to come and preach to you all, and it's good to have my family with me. We are missing one. If y'all are doing a head count, we're down one. Uh, my oldest, Harrison, he's, uh, he is off at college, but you say, well, it's the summertime. Well, he's actually in Boone right now. Um, he, he's got him a girl that he's uh, running around trying to, trying to find, and um, so I think that's what he's doing right there. Uh, but he'll be back because he's got to go to work on uh, Tuesday, so uh, he'll be back. We'll see him, but uh, he's up there visiting her church this morning. But uh, we miss him, um, and uh, we miss him singing with us and all that. But I'm um, going to preach to you out of Psalm 142. Uh, just for those of you that were not able to be with us in Sunday school, we actually uh, did spend a little bit of time on the background, not necessarily on Psalm 142, but on the story in which Psalm 142 emerged, from which it emerges. Just the headlines uh, to lead you up to this point, David, the, the, the well-known King David of the Old Testament, he has been on the run at this point. Before he was on the run, he had been crowned king by God, not necessarily by the people, you understand, but God did this. He had killed Goliath, had done an amazing, had an amazing victory in killing Goliath. The people of Israel were celebrating him. In a lot of ways, he's, on, he's riding a, a wave of excitement, a big high that he's been going through. But here's the problem. The reigning king, a man named Saul, was not real thrilled with that situation. In fact, he did not like all of the um, attention being drawn away from him, Saul, over to King David. And he was looking to kill David. And there was a series of moves that David made, and that's what we spent a little bit of time this morning talking about. But we could say, whatever you want to say about those series of moves, you could not really classify any of them as intelligent, as smart moves. They were really bad moves that he made. And as, as the end of it, he ends up in this cave. It's called the Cave of Adullam. In that cave, this is, you can see this in 1 Samuel 22 and 23. You could read it on your own as you have time. But while he's there, he does one thing. The scripture indicates he does the one thing that he had not done in a very long time. But it was the one thing that he should have done at the beginning. And that's always the way it is. Sometimes you don't do what you're supposed to do at start. You end up doing it later. But he did it eventually. And that was, <clears throat> he cried out and he called out to God for direction. While he's in that cave, he wrote three, we the, the scriptures indicate there were three different psalms that he wrote. One was Psalm 34, one was Psalm 57, and one was Psalm 142. And the fact that he wrote all three of these psalms, and even look at the, the content of the psalm, indicates that his time in that cave was a time of prayer, a time of reflection, a time of getting back in, clo in close contact with God. And we're going to take just a few moments this morning and read Psalm 142 and take some thoughts from the, from the scripture here. I will ask you if you have that, if you found that in your copy of God's Word, I want to ask you to stand with me. I want to read this and like you to follow along. We're ask, I'm asking you to stand not because it's required, because it's not, but I appreciate if you're able to, the fact that we're showing reverence to God's Word. Because these are powerful words pinned down by, we understand by David, but these are from God to this church this morning. And here's what he says. 
I cried unto the Lord with my voice. With my voice unto the Lord did I make my supplication. I poured out my complaint before him. I showed before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then thou knewest my path. In the way wherein I have walked, they privily laid a snare for me. I looked on my right hand, behold, and beheld, but there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. I cried unto thee, O Lord. I said, thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. Attend unto my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, and I admit that I may praise thy name. The righteous shall compass me about, for thou shalt deal, thou shalt deal bountifully with my soul, with me. Let's pray together. Father, please bless the reading of your word. We know that these are your words that are powerful. That will do their, that will find their intended goal, and I pray God this morning. I'm asking you in the name of Jesus, because it is His name that we intend to glorify this morning. I ask you in His name that you will encourage these people that are here listening to what I'm saying, here gathered to worship Jesus. Would you encourage them to cry out to you this morning? I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. In the uh, late 1700s, there was a Presbyterian preacher by the name of James McGreedy. He uh, was actually converted in Guilford County, North Carolina. <clears throat> you understand, late, late 1700s, uh, we, uh, we might have the city of Greensboro, but they, they thought of it more as Guilford County at that point. Uh, Guilford County, North Carolina, he was converted to, to Christ. And uh, over a series of years, in the late 1700s, he took over a pastorate of a group of churches that was known at the time as the Orange Presbytery. Orange Presbytery is a little bit close to where I live. I live in Hillsborough in Orange County. It was actually the Orange Presbytery uh, would mean that he actually took over a group of churches where he would split his time between three different churches in this community. It happens to be in current day Alamance County where he was. Each Sunday he would split his time between Hall River, Speedwell, and Stony Creek Presbyterian churches. And by the way, it was an interesting note, I had been preaching at a church called Deep Creek Baptist Church in Burlington here lately, and some of you may know that from, from years ago. Uh, uh, there are some missionaries and things that have come out of that church, and uh, this is just down the road from that church where these churches were. But this man, Preacher Magrita, he was a, a really large man, a very tall, kind of a round fella, and apparently had this very thunderous voice. When he would preach, you could not pay attention to him. And uh, historical records indicate, I've never seen a picture of him, so I can't validate this, but historical records indicate he was, uh, uh, quote, a hideous man. Apparently he was not a very attractive man. Uh, but it got people's attention. And he would preach all over the Piedmont uh, for people to repent, tell them to come to Christ, come to Christ. And people did. There were a lot of people that responded to him, and he drew a bit of a following and was known as an as a, as a, uh, exciting preacher, somebody would, you'd come to hear, and, and many people at that, in that era would come to hear him, and it would come to Christ as a result of that. But as he's preaching in the Orange Presbytery, he starts hitting some resistance. First, it was at the Hall River congregation in Hall River. They were split on his preaching. About half the church liked him. They really appreciated what he had to say, and they, they were falling behind him. 
But then the other half of the church, they said, oh, we don't really like this preaching on repentance. We don't want to have to change from our ways. We don't like this. We don't really care for it. And you know what ended up happening with that church? It ended up dissolving. And even to this day, you go to Hall River, North Carolina, there is a Presbyterian cemetery, but there is no Presbyterian church in Hall River as a result of their split over Preacher McGreedy. Then there's the Stony, Stony Creek Church. Those folks got actually violent. Now, I've never seen anything like this happen. I've seen, at least us Baptists, you know, we squabble and we squall over stuff, but I've never seen anything quite like what would happen here at the Stony Creek Church. These people got so upset, there was a particular group within the church that got so upset with Preacher McGreedy. One, sun, one, one week before the Sunday service, they actually came into the congregation, came into the sanctuary and ripped out the furniture, threw it all out in the yard, put it all outside, and actually took the pulpit and chopped it up and made a bonfire out of it. They were so committed to their dislike of Preacher McGreedy. You know what they did? Somebody, I don't know whose blood it was, but they actually took somebody's blood and wrote a letter to him in blood that said, Brother McGreedy, I don't know if they called him brother or not, but they said Preacher McGreedy, Preacher McGreedy, listen, today it was the pulpit that we put in the bonfire. Tomorrow, it'll be you. They're basically telling him to sit down and shut up. Don't do that anymore. Stop it. And this kind of gives you an indication of his character. That Sunday he shows up to church, first of all. I don't know if I showed up myself, but he did. And he preached out of Psalm 74, verses 5 to 7. It says, There they have cast fire into thy sanctuary. They have defiled by casting down the dwelling place of thy name. And he preached right at them. He said, You bunch of jokers coming in here want to to uh, defile God's house like that. He come at him. Of course, it's not surprising. It wasn't long that Preacher McGreedy did not stay there very much longer. He took his family across the Blue Ridge Mountains not long after that. And they ended up settling over in Kentucky, a place called Logan County, Kentucky. They took up another, he took up another circuit of churches. Again, that was their practice at the time, a lot of rural churches. So they took up a circuit of churches in Logan County. They were the Gasper River, Muddy River, and Red River congregations. So it was around a couple of rivers there that he, that he took up. And he did something a little bit different. I, I don't know all of the, the details of his ministry here in North Carolina, but one of the things that marked his ministry, that was notable about his ministry, the history books make note of this, was that before he really got down to business working with these churches, he said, I want you all to sign a covenant. I know this church, like many churches, you probably have a church covenant. And they, they certainly had that as well. But he said, I want you to sign something special with me. I'll agree to it if you'll agree to it. And we'll work together and we'll work together in this way. They signed a pledge, and I'll read part of it to you because I think this is, this is relevant for our sermon this morning. He says, this is not the full thing, just a part. He says, therefore, we bind ourselves to observe the third Saturday of each month for one year as a day of fasting and prayer for the conversion of sinners in Logan County. This is Logan County, Kentucky, and throughout the world. We also engage to spend one half hour every Saturday evening, beginning at the setting of the sun, and one half hour every Sabbath or Sunday morning from the rising of the sun, pleading with God to revive his work. Now, his time there in Logan County was not problem-free. Don't get that impression by any means. He had his share of issues. There were certainly people that didn't like him there, just like they didn't like him here in North Carolina. But one of the things that did happen, his dedication to, that he and this church had to prayer, is at least in part, and I would say a large part, 
credited for sparking what is now called, again, according to historians, the Great Revival of 1800. Now, that revival started in Logan County, Kentucky, and it is credited, it spread throughout the South. We actually had, it was a part of the, the Second Great Awakening, if you've heard about that. It was, it was kind of the fringe part of that, that, uh, that uh, revival time. But the most notable things is there's a lot of the things that happened in that revival that even our own experience, and I know we're not Presbyterians, we're Baptists, but even our own religious practices were actually influenced by that. Things like the religious atmosphere that many of us experience today, like if you've ever been to a camp meeting, if you ever even heard of those, those things really started as a result of Preacher McGreedy's revival services and the things that he did. A lot of the singing, the, the sort of the vibrant singing that we have, the hymn singing, the gospel singing, the style of music that we enjoy today had its roots in that kind of revival. And that's not to even mention the thousands upon thousands of people that came to Christ. Amen. Now I give you that story, now you say, well Matthew, that's a long-winded story, and I, I understand, but I tell you that story for a very important purpose. Not to hold up Brother McGreedy as some sort of hero necessarily, I think we can learn a lot from his life, but he was just another man with human frailties like any of us. But I want to give you, give you, I gave you him to give you an example of how God moves when God's people cry out to him. Because that's exactly what happened here. This was not one man doing this. This was a congregation, really three congregations, that covenanted to pray together. And this is how God moves when his people will cry out to him, especially when things are not looking so good. And that's exactly where David finds himself in this psalm, Psalm 142. You see, David had tried all kinds of stuff. He had gotten all kinds of backlash from all those things. None of it was working. All of it was backfiring. But there's one powerful weapon that worked for David, that worked for the Logan County churches, that can work for this congregation, for you individually. There's a weapon that nothing can thwart. And that's when a child cries out to his father. Amen. That is the weapon that we have, that we are wielding this morning. In fact, look with me in the text. He says that I, David, cried unto the Lord with my voice. He is crying out. There is this idea of crying. I want you to imagine what I mean by crying. Yes, there are, there's emotion that's involved in that. There is emotion. He even suggests that by saying things like in, in, in verse 2, I poured out my complaint before him. He is saying, listen, here's everything that's in me. My heart, my, my, my spilling my guts out to you, God. I just, it's all there. It's hurting me. It's inside of me. And I'm pouring it out to you, Lord. There's an emotion in what he's doing. He's crying out in his predicament. He is in verse 3. He said, my spirit was overwhelmed within me. He is feeling trapped. He's feeling overwhelmed by what's going on. He doesn't know what to do. Have y'all ever been there? You're in that position where you've tried everything and everything seems wrong. And sometimes you don't even know what to do. So you're frozen in inaction. But you know it's not going to work and you're hurting and you're overwhelmed. This is what he means by crying out. But also don't miss that he also means when he's crying out, he's making a request to God. He says this in verse 1, go back to verse 1. He says, with my voice did, unto the Lord did I make my supplication. He is requesting something of God. Yes, there is an emotion there. There is just a visceral cry. Ah, I'm hurting. 
But there is a request, God, I need your help in this circumstance. And further, this request is not just simply, Lord, I need your help. This is a loud request. Look at what he says. He says, I cried unto the Lord with my voice, with my voice unto the Lord did I make my supplication. I poured out my complaint before him. I showed before him my trouble. He is making it clear. He is making it loud. He is not whispering in a corner. He is saying, God, you have to work in this circumstance. If you do not work in this circumstance, all hope is lost. What I'm trying to get you to see is when I ask you, and I'm going to invite you, by the way, this afternoon, this, this morning before we leave, I'm going to invite every one of you. Might as well get your mind prepared and wrapped around this. I'm going to invite you to come and cry out to God. Y'all can come down here and do that. You can sit along the front of this. You can stay where you are as far as I'm concerned. But I want you to cry out to God. And what I mean by that is what I think Paul, uh, David is saying to us here. He is saying, make a request, make it clear, make it loud, have emotion behind it, understand, you know what your need is. I don't. Your needs are unique to you. But God wants you to express that to him. And he says, I'm overwhelmed by my circumstance in verse 3. I, my spirit was overwhelmed within me. He says, and continued on in verse 3, he says, In the way wherein I have walked, they privily laid a snare for me. He says, it seems like every which way I go, there's somebody there has already been ahead of me and already trying to figure out how to get me trapped. Trying to, trying to get me in trouble. Trying to make me hurt worse. And he even goes on and says, in that, verse 4, he says, no man cared. This is the end of verse 4. No man cared for my soul. You ever been there? That's a lonely feeling. You're, it, it's lonely when you don't feel like anybody cares for you. That's bad any way you look at it. But add to that all this other stuff. That, and again, I can imagine David's not the only one that's ever been there. He has a problem. He's hurting. Every decision he makes seems wrong. He needs this thing fixed. It hurts him to his soul. And he's asking God, please help me. I feel like nobody cares for me. Not just about my circumstance, but for me. It's a terrible feeling, isn't it? Especially if you've ever been there. Some of you have. But I want you to see that in this circumstance, what David sees in verse 3, he says, my spirit was overwhelmed within me. Then thou knewest my path. He says that God knows his path. God knows his path. Now, what does that mean? It means that God knows where he is. So he, can, he says, yep, there's David. I see where he is. That's, what it means. That's part of it. That's part of it. Don't, don't miss that. That's part of it. But it's not just that. Does God know where you are this morning? Yeah, he knows where you are. He knows you're sitting on a pew in this church. He knows where you're going to go this afternoon. He knows everything. He sees you. So that's part of what he's saying there. But when the Bible, in particular in this place, he says, He knoweth, he knoweth my, he knoweth my, he knoweth my path. There is something about intimate knowledge that is suggested here. It's not simply observing, I see you. He is knowing it. He is with us. He is intimate with our situation. He's feeling it with us. If I were to stand up here and say to you, are you with me this morning? I'll just ask you, are you with me this morning? I hope you are. But with me this morning doesn't mean you're sitting in my presence. That's not what I mean. You understand that, right? I mean with me as in, are you following along? Are you hearing me? Are you feeling what I'm trying to communicate? That's what I mean by that. In the same way, God is with us. 
Is he with us? Yes. He's in our presence. Holy Spirit lives within us. I understand all that theology. I get it. You do too. And we're good on that. But that's more. That's only part of what's meant here. There's more to it. He actually understands. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15, it tells us, We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Do you know that Jesus Christ has felt everything that you ever have felt? But he did so in a way that, as the Bible says, without sin. He knows exactly where you, yes, does he see you? Yes. But he feels where you are this morning. He's feeling that. He knows it. He's with you in that. He understands where you are. And in fact, in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, it tells me that the Spirit helps me with these infirmities. For we, yet, for we know not what we pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us. Yes. with groanings which cannot be uttered. Do you know that God understands how you feel so much that there are times where you cannot articulate your problems, yes. you cannot actually put words to your need. He actually sends the Holy Spirit to put those words into the ear of the Father so that your need can be met. He understands that sometimes you can't even say what you need right. because you don't even know. You just know it hurts too bad. Our son Harrison, he's our oldest, and uh, he got a couple of speeding tickets when he first moved up to, to Boone. Got them in rapid order too, two right, in, two right in a row within like two or three weeks of each other. And I can imagine if I were him, because I'll just go ahead and tell you, spoiler alert, me too, I did that before. Because um, I can imagine if I'm him, I, I'm sitting there saying, oh my goodness, mom and daddy are going to kill me, I got these tickets. I don't know what to do. I don't even know how to handle this. But what he, what he may or may not understood was that when he, if he would come to me, and he did, he did. If he'd come to me, I could advise him very well on what to do. <laughs> not because I'm an attorney, but because I've been there. I've done that. I felt that. I know what that means to be a new driver away from home for the first time and getting a ticket for going too fast. Stupid as it is, you did it. And I'm saying that to say not to give him an excuse, but to say that his mama and his daddy, more his daddy than his mama, but we can help him. Why can we help him? Not just because we are aware of his speeding tickets, but because we felt that. We know the concern, the worry, the, the, the financial implications of that, which are the big problem. We know what that is. We can help him navigate the situation because we've felt that. Do you understand in a much more significant, much more cosmic, universal way, spiritual implications, physical implications, God knows where you are this morning. He knows exactly where you are. He understands your problem. He cares for your problem. He's paid for your sins this morning. He actually took them on himself. So do not be ashamed to go into his presence with your sin. Too many of us, I've done this before. I've done something wrong and I'm like, well, God doesn't even want to hear from me because I'm such a lousy sinner. Well, you are a lousy sinner, but you know what? He's taken that sin. He knows what you've done. Jesus Christ hung on a cross with your very sins, the very thing that you're ashamed of. He took it on himself, though. He knows that already. Yeah. Do you know your best course of action? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's your only hope. Amen. He knows. Take it to him. You may say, well, well my problem is kind of small. It's not a big deal. 
It's a little bitty problem. But do you understand the God you're talking about? He works on an atomic level. You do know he made you, right? Every one of you. He made man as a, as a concept, but he made you specifically. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, the Bible tells me. You specifically are because God made you. Meaning that literally down to the microscopic atomic level that God is creating those elements and he's holding it by him. All things consist, the Bible tells me. He's holding together. If it weren't for God this morning, we'd all explode into nothingness. But because God is God and he is your God, he holds your atoms together. So don't tell me there's anything too small for God. So I don't know what your problem is. You may say, well, it seems silly. It seems small. Well, it's your problem. Take it to God. He will help you cry out to him with that. Well, you say, well, you don't understand my problem is so big. I don't think anybody can solve it. It's so big. But again, do you understand the God you serve? He is the God that not only works on the atomic level, he works in the the currency of universes. He made everything that exists. He actually made the concept of time. We wouldn't even know what time is apart from God. We don't know what love is apart from God. We don't even understand anything. We know because God is. That's right. That's a big thought to think about. If you know anything this morning, it's because God allows you to understand that. That's That's kind of a big deal. God deals in those kinds of big things. There's no problem too big, no problem too small, nothing too shameful to take to him. Take it to him. That means the future of this church. That means that lost loved one. That means your sick friend. That means the security of this country. That means the health insurance programs that you're worried about. That means that your pets that you're concerned about and that you love dearly. All of those things, no matter how big you think it is, no matter how small you think it is, no matter how insignificant or significant, your God is powerful, able, and interested to care for it. Remember what Matthew chapter 1 verse 23 says his name is. His name is Emmanuel. Do you know what that means? The Bible tells us God, he's divine, he's powerful, he's almighty, but God with us. He's intimate with us. He knows us. He walks along with us. He has been in human skin. He knows what it looks like and feels like to walk this life. He is our God, God with us. So let's cry out to God because he's with us. But we also should cry out to God because he provides for us. Look at here in verse uh, verse 3 again. These people are out to get him. He says, my soul is overwhelmed. In the way wherein I walked, they privily laid a snare for me. In verse 4, he says, I look on the right hand. He says, nobody's there that knows me. He says, my refuge fails me. The places I would go for for help and protection, that's not helping me. No man cares for my soul. He seems like he's in a desperate situation. He seems lost. He seems at a loss. He seems like people are coming after him to get everything he's got. They're going to take his life if he can. That's actually the circumstance he's in. He knows that if Saul got his way, he would take every possession he had, kill everybody in his family. He would take Take everything that was precious to him. He would be at danger. He would be at loss. He would be hurting. But look in verse 5. I cried unto thee, O God. I said, thou, God, art my refuge and my portion. I've got God on my side, he's saying. 
Not to say that everything I'm doing is right. That's not what I'm trying to suggest. David is not always right. Matthew Tilly's not always right. But I do know that my God cares for me. He is my refuge. He is the place that I can go for protection. And he is my portion. Meaning, he is the one for which I have an eternal inheritance. I am the he, I have from G, from God Jesus Christ Himself. First Peter says it is a crown of glory that will never fade away. First Peter five. I have that in Jesus. So people can take away my possessions. People can even take away my life. But I, as a, as the New Testament tells me, I do not need to fear one who can take my life. I need to fear Him who can throw body and soul into hell. And that is God. So God has already given me protection. He's already given me a portion. I have everything I need in Jesus. So instead of trying to look to all of these other things, I should go to the one who is powerful, the one who is able, the one who is interested, the one who is effective. Greater is he that is in me, that is in you, than he that is in the world. Only God will protect you. Only he is the one we can run to for safety. Only he has an eternal gift for you that's beyond value. A little child, at least I can say this about my children, when they were little children, most children I've ever seen like this, you see them get hurt. My, in my house, this is how it, hurt. How it happened. The little kid gets hurt, and they would say, Mama, Mama. They wouldn't cry out for the president. They wouldn't cry out for the governor. They wouldn't cry out for the preacher. They wouldn't even cry out for their daddy. They say, Mama. Why? Because Mama helps. Mama gives them what they need. Mama cares for her, cares for them. They know that crying out Mama, they don't even know how to put the words together, but they say Mama, and Mama comes running and puts kisses on them and they feel better and everything's all better because of that. That's exactly how it is with our God. We cry out to him, Abba, Father, help me, please. And he comes running. He has the desire. He has the ability to protect and to provide. So where are you going to run to when you are frustrated by your circumstances? And I guarantee you it's going to happen if it hasn't already. Where are you going to run? To whom will you run? Who can help you? Where are you going to turn when you're hurting or you're lacking something in your life? How are you going to handle temptation when it attacks you, when it defeats you? Who's going to help you then? Where are you going to go to when you're worried about your children or your grandchildren or your family that is, that is hurting? What are you going to do then? There's only one that can help. He is the one who is our refuge and our portion. Yet with all that, as much as he's our refuge and our portion, I want you to see one last thing about this. Look with me in last, lastly in verse 6. Attend unto my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. He says, listen, I've got people coming after me, and they're strong. I'm weak. He says in verse 7, he says, bring my soul out of prison. He says, I'm in bondage. I am actually trapped in my circumstances. You've got to save me from this, God. Please help me. But look at what he says there at the last part. For thou shalt deal bountifully with me. You see, our God, he's with us. That alone is valuable. Have you ever had it where you've been in a circumstance and you just know there's finally somebody that's going to listen to you? You ever been there? That's, that's powerful to me. God does that. Did you, have you ever had a situation where you needed some help and you could turn to somebody and they actually help you? That's valuable. God does that. But he also doesn't stop with that. If I was your friend and I listened to you and then you needed $100 and I gave you $100, I'm tapped out. 
God's not tapped out. What does he do? He says, you'll deal bountifully with me. This idea of bountiful is lavish. He is excessive. He cannot, there is no bottom to what he will do and can do. He will continue. In fact, Ephesians 3.20 says he is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Our God can literally do anything. I mean, I want you to get your head around that for a moment. This is something that I think you understand and appreciate because you read the Bible just like I do. And you know, yep, God's powerful. But do you know what that means? That means he can do anything. And things that you've never even imagined before. I've never imagined the things that God has planned for his people. That's what uh, 1 Corinthians says for us. He says there's things that are above that. He says in Matthew 28 that he has all power. And he says he's with me to the end of the world. All power. You see, I think our faith is just a little bit too small for our God. Let me read you one more quote here. This is from a writer from the from last century. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, filling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday by the sea. We're far too easily pleased. What I mean by why I read that to you is to tell you, listen, we need to trust our God. Let us prove our God. Let us lean on our God. How many of us, when we are in trouble, lean on our financial security, lean on our families, lean on those friends around us, lean on our jobs, lean on our reputations, lean on whatever else it is that you have that you lean on and your idols in your life instead of leaning on the one who can actually create universes why not lean on him that means trusting on him trusting him both in his wisdom both in his strength but also in his wisdom to say no when we need no that means i believe and i hope you do too that the best days for this church as a congregation and as a shining light for jesus christ in this community can be ahead of her not just because we have a wonderful history and you do but can be ahead of her looking ahead because our God can work today like he did 20, 40, 60, 100 years ago in this community and others. I believe our God can do amazing things to the individual people that sit here in these pews. I believe that our God will surprise us if and only if, as David does, we cry out to him. We have a lavish God, ready and willing to do amazing things. He will deal bountifully with us. But we must do as David does here, cry out to our Lord. You can be confident when you cry out to him, he's going to actually care. He's actually going to protect. He's actually going to give you his very best. Did you understand he's already given you his very best in Jesus? You can't get better than that. He's lavish. He'll do anything and everything in a way that you'll never expect. Blow you away. No matter what you need, whatever you need, you need to follow his lead, David's lead here. Cry out to God. Pour out your complaint before him. Show him your trouble. So here's my invitation. In fact, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand. Go ahead and stand with me. I'm going to invite you to do something with me this morning. I don't know if you ever do it this way or not, but I'm going to invite you. Y'all come or you don't come, that's up to you. But I'm going to invite you. The Bible has made it clear and I think plain. We cry out to God. 
He hears us. We cry out to God, He helps us. We cry out to God, and He deals lavishly with us. Let's cry out to God this morning. What is it you need? My invitation to you is simple. Cry out to God for your need, for your salvation if you need it, for decisions, your health, your finances, your relationships, this church, whatever that is, please cry out to God. I'm going to ask somebody to come to play the piano for us. Just going to play it through a song. I'm going to pray. While, we, while that piano plays, I'm going to actually step down over here. And if you need salvation this morning, you need to cry out to God for your soul. You come and talk to me. I can't save you, but I can tell you who can. So Lord, please help these people as they come to cry out to you. Would you encourage them, remind them, not that they're doing any, they're not responding to me, God, but they should respond to you because you have the power to help them. Please help them, Lord. Please help them. Please help me. As I make decisions, as I have things I need to be doing, places you want me to go, help me to hear your voice and follow your guidance. Help me to be wise. Give me the wisdom that I need. Lord, we have so many needs. Please help these people to cry out to you. Would y'all come? Come and cry out.